So, uh, as Andrew and I considered some messages over the summer to, to kind of put into a, a little series, we thought about the summer, we thought about breaks, we thought about vacations and speakers. We, we want to move into a, a longer series on 1 Corinthians, but we want to save that for the end of the summer, and we're going to do a short series. Uh, and as we talked about where our hearts were, were thinking wisdom was and where we were burdened, we, we kind of came around this theme of endurance, of keeping hold of essential and vital things in a season where the winds that Kurt spoke of so well last week, and if you didn't listen to Kurt's message, shame on you, unless you can't, you know, unless you haven't had the ability. Then, then, I'm sorry for saying shame on you, but if you do have the ability and you haven't, shame. You, it is such a great message, and the discussion questions, I wrote discussion questions, they're so good. Um, I'm, I'm just teasing. The message was so darn good. Uh, just want to encourage everybody to take it down. Matt Hoosier's message was so darn good. Um, I, I don't know who I was talking to. Jake this week, he's like, I don't want to get guest preacheritis, but I'm telling you, those guest preachers. But he's right. You know, we have just had some wonderful, wonderful guest preaching from Rob and from Matt, from Kurt. So, but all that's to say, uh, those winds Kurt spoke of last week are blowing. They're blowing hard in all of our lives in various ways. And various uh, various speeds, um, and, and so what we want to do is try to talk about the things that we have to hold on to in the winds of these things, the things that we have to endure, endure holding on to and keeping our grip on through the winds. And today I'm going to try to lay a foundation on the very necessity of enduring, this idea of enduring, that it is essential, it's not an option, and really try to go big picture on this idea of endurance, holding on, persevering, and how that also relates to the gospel of grace. Um, So I'm going to start with, uh, we're going to look at a few different texts, but the primary text this morning is going to be Luke chapter 8, verses 4 through uh, 15, and I will have it behind me, so if it's more helpful for you to look up than it is to look in your word, uh, in your own Bible, that's fine. So starting right there, we're going to get right into it. Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 4. When a large crowd was coming together, and those from various cities were journeying to him, He spoke by way of a parable. The sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell beside the road. And it was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air ate it up. Other seed fell on rocky soil, and as soon as it grew up, it withered away, because it had no moisture. Other seed fell among thorns. And the thorns grew up with it and choked it out. Other seed fell into the good soil and grew up and produced a crop a hundred times as great. As he said these things, he would call out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. And his disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, To you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now, the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those beside the road are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their heart, so that they will not believe And be saved. Those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear. Receive the word with joy. 
and these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. The seed which fell among the thorns, these are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity. But the seed in the good soil, these are the ones who have heard the word and in an honest and good heart and hold it fast and bear fruit with perseverance. These are the very words of the Lord. Now, on one hand, this parable is fairly straightforward. Jesus himself explains every detail. And so we can go straight to him for interpretation. What is the seed? Verse 11, Luke calls the seed the word of God. Matthew has his own version as Mark has his own version of this parable. They're very close. In Matthew's version, it's called the word of the kingdom. And so simply put, the seed is the truth about Jesus and the call to respond to him in repentance and faith and trust. And the soil represents the hearts of people who respond. And four types of people are described by four types of soil. The first soil represents the hearts of folks who simply reject the gospel outright. They hear the word. They don't receive it in any way. They don't trust it. And at some point, there's no more consideration of it. And they move on. There's more going on in the invisible realities, though, than their simple rejection. Jesus tells us that Satan ensures their hardness persists. And we saw this a few weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 4, where Paul described the hardened as blinded by the God of this age. So they can't see the gospel. That was uh, in, in our second to last Holy Spirit series message. And you might know many of these people. Christ has heard about. There's just no interest. There's, there's a flat rejection. It could be a nice rejection like, that's good for you. I'm glad you have something to hold on to. Or increasingly in our culture, it's more hostile. Jesus is, is hated. He, his people are bigots, judgmental fools. Now, most of these people, we... We like, we, we can work with them. They're, they're kind to us. We can be kind to them. And, but there is a terrible situation going on in, in the eternal realities. Satan, Jesus says, is, being, is keeping them from believing in Jesus Christ. And, and that's just, you couldn't have a more dire situation. But this is the word of the Lord. The second soul represents the hearts of those who believe for a while. In fact, they receive the word with joy, but there's no real depth to their faith. It is temporary. It doesn't endure. It doesn't last. We don't know how long. Jesus doesn't specify timetables. But in some time of temptation, they abandoned trusting and following Christ. And they fall away from him. In Matthew's version of this parable, Jesus says these folks fall away when trouble or persecution comes because of the word. And so it might be better to understand these temptations as adversity because of Christian faith, persecution. Peter was on the cusp. Peter himself was on the cusp of showing himself to be this kind of believer, this shallow falling away believer with no root. When he denied Jesus, do you remember what Jesus told him that night? Jesus said, Peter, Satan, 
This is the Apostle Peter. Satan has desired to sift you like wheat. He's asked God to do that. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you so that your faith would not fail. This context of persecution and, 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 you know, Andrew prayed for this today. This is, this is the daily reality for so many believers in Muslim countries where families will disown or persecute believers in, in harsh demonic regimes like those in North Korea, where it's just, it's a day to day life of watching your back, wondering what you're saying, who's going to surprise you with trouble and betrayal. And it might be very well that in our own lifetime, we're going to see this type of trouble in our own country, and maybe in the lifetime of our children. But in our own culture right now, it seems to me that this third soil, this third soil is more representative of what we see and experience. Jesus says of the third soil, it falls among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard. And as they go on their way, they are choked with worries and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to maturity in the parable thorns grew up with the seed in verse 7 the seed itself grows by implication it's a growing seed jesus says in verse 14 there is no fruit that's brought to maturity and so there's this initial faith there is belief but over time it gets suffocated it gets lost and squelched by the worries and riches and pleasures all around us. And this is the most frightening soil story for me personally. And, and, and for many of us, I, I, I wonder if that would be true for you as well as you think about your danger to these soils. D.A. Carson says that these thorns may be so subtle that one may not be aware of the choking that is going on while it's happening. You guys remember, many of you remember The Wizard of Oz. Some of you guys haven't seen it. If you're a kid, because now we have seven to ten-year-olds in here, talk to your parents before seeing that movie. That lady, Miss Gulch, is the most frightening thing I've ever seen in media form and what she turns into. But remember that, that Miss Gulch, as she becomes the witch, at first she tries to intimidate Dorothy with rage and anger and threats to give up those slippers. But Dorothy doesn't give up the slippers. But as they're going on their way to Emerald City, what does the witch do? She moves in a different way. She plants this garden of poisonous flowers, poppies. And she says, And now, my beauties, something with poison in it. With poison in it. But attractive to the eye and soothing to the smell. Poppies. Poppies will put them to sleep. Sleep. Now they'll sleep. I'll just, I'll never forget the curvature of that last sleep. Sleep. Whoa. That is heavy. That's demonic. And they go to sleep. Dorothy goes to sleep. And, and she's seduced. She's lulled. She doesn't know what's happening. But the witch's intent is to lead her to death. She can barely feel it. And I think of this situation when Jesus says to the church, to the church of Laodicea, I know your deeds. You are neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. 
Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. And you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich. And white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I, salve, to anoint your eyes that you may see those whom I love. I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches. This church wasn't persecuted as as far as I understand. That's not the language Jesus uses here. It's the opposite. They're, They're in a fairly prosperous situation materially and comfortably. But the poppies were putting them to sleep. And listen, poppies don't have to be things like adultery or stealing outright. It can be the cumulative numbing effect of having your dreams come true for this life. It can be the cumulative numbing effect of not having your dreams come true in this life and being controlled by that absence. The beautiful home I have or the beautiful home I want that they have. The entertaining phone that opens up vistas of enjoyment and pleasure and Movies and funny clips and sports. The engrossing career that I need. The engrossing career that's awesome that I have. It can be taking harmless things like sports and music and hobbies and social media. And slowly letting them become first loves. Where Jesus over time just becomes. As the poppies have their effect. More and more just a sentimental and irrelevant person in our lives. There's, there's a crisis need for him as he graciously brings crises to wake us up, but we move through those crises and we go back to sleep. There's nothing dramatic in Jesus' description here of this soil. It's simply this world, this world, its cares, eclipsing Jesus as the priority. It may even be ministry affairs. Oh, this is so possible for me and for pastors or for you as, as people who serve and work in the church. But you're engaged in a worldly way. You're a pastor. You're deeply involved in your care group. Some ministry. But slowly, surely, over time, you are losing your first love. And so you're so overwhelmingly focused on the troubles and the issues of ministry. The things that you want that you're not getting. Or the things that you are getting that you want to keep. You're losing sight of the one person that it's all for. As well as the one person who is the only person who gets anything done. In the church. So whatever it is. Worries, anxieties, desires. That don't have their roots. In the worship of God. They seek to wrestle us away. From a quiet trust in Jesus. A quiet satisfaction in Jesus. And slowly and gently. Euthanize. The heart that beats for the Lord. It's a horror story. It's a quiet. Slow. Awful horror story. 
The final soul is different. Final soil is different. This heart represents an honest and good heart, Jesus says. These hearts take the word of God and hold it fast. And they bear fruit with perseverance. They endure. They endure. They go on. They go on. They don't give up. Notice the difference between this soil and the rest. Holding fast. Enduring. Perseverance. And the result is that fruit comes. And fruit's allowed to come to maturity. We're not told what the fruit is exactly in this parable. But in the larger context of the gospel of Luke, that fruit would include obedience to Jesus. Rooted in love for him and a holy fear of him. It would include an earnest pursuit of prayer rooted in hope and a sense of desperate need. It would include devotion to the word rooted in reverence and a thirst for God's word. It would include care for the poor rooted in compassion and worship of God as the, the, the one who gives us all worth as image bearers. It would include courage to share Jesus even when it's awkward and hard, rooted in trust in his sovereignty over that situation and urgency about the judgment to come. It would include commitment to brothers and sisters to work through hard things, rooted in respect again for God's image bearers and, and humility. You recognize your need yourself. Another way we could see fruit outside the New Testament would, would just simply be the Holy Spirit's work we've talked about for, for months. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness. This is the fruit God longs to see and wants to see and in the context of this, essentially demands to see out of our lives. Finally, an important feature of the fruit in the agricultural analogy that Jesus is bringing is, is it's a hundred times as great. But what's really neat and encouraging is that in Matthew, it's a hundred or sixty or thirty times as great. This is a tender and humble accent by Matthew to just remind us that the size of the crop isn't as important but that there is fruit. God isn't a tyrant. True believers, Matthew implicitly slips in, they will vary in their maturity. They will vary in their fruit, but there will be fruit and it will last. Now at this point, some of us might start wondering what in the world has happened to the gospel. I have to cough. <clears throat> Thank you. We're a gospel-centered church. We, we want to emphasize God's grace and God's work and God's sovereignty in our salvation over and against an emphasis on ourselves. So does this parable contradict the gospel of grace? It's, it's tricky. Because in this parable of different soils, the difference is not seen primarily at first take. The differences between the soils is not seen in God's grace. It's seen in the soils themselves, in their heart responses. It's, it's, it's sobering. It's serious. It's no laughing matter. But this is the word of God. So I want to make three points about that. Number one, parables are not exhaustive, systematic theologies of all of God's truth. They're not complete pictures of all aspects of his truth. Jesus doesn't have to talk about judgment in every parable. He doesn't have to talk about God's grace in every parable the way that we think of it in terms of its saving effect from God's perspective. So one parable doesn't do every aspect of who God is that's vital for us to understand justice. Number two, false belief and falling away is a danger 
that in God's gracious heart, he has decided we must be warned against for our own good. False belief, the, the possibility of us being falsely deceived and, and, and the reality that you cannot be a believer and bear no fruit in Christ and say, I've got the gospel, I'm good, I'm saved by grace and my life issues and no repentance and no following. We have to be warned against that for our own good. We have to be warned against becoming a person who becomes euthanized to God and falls away from him. We, many of us know people who used to be zealous for the Lord who don't want to talk about him anymore. I don't say this lightly. Those people are in grave peril. They're in grave peril. It could not be more serious. We, we have to understand salvation from God's point of view comprehensively. We, we tend to talk and sing of salvation rightly as a one-time experience. And typically we're talking about the doctrine of justification, that we believe God and we're saved in a moment. And that is true, but it is not the only truth. The Bible has a bigger view. To put it in simple terms, in the Bible, we are saved. In the Bible, we are being saved. In the Bible, we will be saved. And the Bible speaks of Christians in, in all of those ways. As those who were saved, justified. As those who are being saved, sanctified. And those who will be saved one day, fully glorified. Each of those aspects needs to embraced, needs to be embraced. God's sovereign work in through our hearts when he saves us does not nullify our hearts. It's not some mechanical thing that, oh, we're saved. We are saved. We will be, you know, we're good. We don't, we got it. I can't even do the robot words. They're not working. But the point is we are real people who have to work out our salvation, not for, but work it out in real relationship with God involving real effort, real struggle, Real investment, even, from us. If we are truly saved, that will happen. And a significant part of this parable is that those who are saved will endure. They will continue, in our just previous vernacular, to be saved. We will persevere in our faith and keep trusting in Jesus and repenting and, and believing and repenting and believing. Until the end. And from God's end, it looks like he's preserving us. From our end, it looks like we're persevering. But both things are true. See, Jesus was clear in Matthew 7 that there are those who say they believe in him. But they don't produce the fruit of righteousness. That he's just spent the last three chapters in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 talking about. They never really followed him. And it showed. He will not be fooled at the day of judgment. He will say to those people, I never knew you. He was clear in Matthew 24 that it is those who endure to the end who will be saved. To use his words, his own words. Those who endure to the end will be saved. Not those who give up following him and walk away from him halfway through. Paul says in Colossians 1 that we have been saved by the gospel if we hold firmly to it. 
You have been saved in the past, if in the present and in the future, you hold firmly to it. Otherwise, he says in 1 Corinthians 15, you have believed in vain. Your, your faith was fake. It wasn't real faith. Hebrews 2 says, we Christians, we Christians must pay close attention to the truth of our salvation. Including all the truths that, that, that fall around it. The judgment to come. The sufficiency of the blood of Christ. And the need to say no to sin and keep seeking after righteousness. We must say yes to all those things and pay attention to those things. The writer says we must do this so that we do not drift away from it. And the consequence in Hebrews 2 of drifting away from it isn't simply a slap on the wrist. It's no escape from God's punishment and judgment. What's going on here? Where's where's the gospel in all this? Well, here's what, what I believe the Bible says is going on. James says, hold on to the, the word of life, which is able, imparted to you, which is able to save you. What does James mean? Are, are, he's talking to saved people already. God is like a parent who warns their child against running into the street where the cars are. And because God faithfully shouts to his children and disciplines them to not run into the street where the cars are, their child does not run into the street where the cars are and die from being struck by the car. These truths are, these warnings are God's means of preserving us in him. When he puts his Holy Spirit in us, he puts a spirit who can hear these words, who has ears to hear. And he has words to say to those with ears to hear. And what he says to those with ears to hear is stay close. Stay close. Don't be deceived. Many will come to me in that day and I'll say, I never knew you. There was no fruit. Don't be fooled. Anger, division, sexual immorality, debauchery, idolatry. You can't unrepentantly live like that and call yourself my child. You can't. Don't be fooled. The world will lie to you about greed, about pride, about sexual morality and homosexuality. Don't be fooled. Stay close to me. And the Holy Spirit gives us power to hear those words. And we do stay close to him and we do endure. But that word must be heard and it must be held on to. And finally, my third point about where's the gospel in this, the word of God that must be held on to central above all things in that word is the gospel of grace. Notice in this parable, it is the word of God and particularly the word of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. That's euphemism for the truth about Jesus and all he is for us that must be held on to at the center of that truth is the truth that Jesus saves us and not ourselves. So what Christians are called to first is not obedience, but to the belief that their obedience will not save them, but that Jesus will. That's the central truth that we must hold on to. It's not the only truth, but it is the central truth. It is the primary truth that holds everything together and keeps them in their right balance. Final application. Is there room in your theology for this parable? 
I hope this morning there'll be more room for a parable like this in your theology. And if there don't, it's because I'm just not teaching it well, probably. But do you understand that we cannot claim to love Jesus and not follow Jesus? We can't do that. He says that doesn't work. You'll dry up that way. You'll fall away from me that way. And do you understand that that's a possibility? That, that all these scriptures, all these warnings aren't saying because it's not possible. There is some sense in which that is possible. That's why God warns against it so that it won't happen. Do you understand that being a true follower of Jesus will show itself in faith that follows him enduringly? Not perfectly. Please don't hear me say perfectly. But it will endure. Second application, I have to ask myself, I've had to ask myself that this week. Is your faith enduring? Is my faith enduring? Is it enduring? Are you holding on to the truths of God's word? Are you seeking it? Are you holding on primarily to the truth that you need Jesus and that he is for you and that his work and his blood is enough for you? Are you holding on to the truths that surround that? These truths that are supposed to give us the right perspective and grounding in this world of pleasures and worries. Truths about heaven as our home and hell as a real place. That's forever and, and horrible that we're saved from. Is your faith fruit bearing? If you're really holding on to those truths, there will be fruit. Are you bearing fruit? Are, are you investing the truths you know into real practice? That will show that you are really hearing. James says, don't just be hearers, but doers. In Jesus' vernacular, to be a hearer is to be a doer. That's the proof that you've heard is that you do. They just say it in different ways, but they're buddies. They grew up together in the same house. Listen, here's what I want. I don't, I don't want this parable. It's not my first choice in my flesh. I want experience without effort. I want to experience God, but I don't want to have to make effort to experience God in my flesh. I want fruit out of my life, but I don't want cost. I don't want to make commitments to God. I don't want to have to get up early. I don't want to have to say I'm sorry. Jesus says that doesn't work. You won't last that way. I want feelings, but I don't want investing. That's just not how it works. So are are we expecting we can simply coast into perseverance and coast into fruit bearing? We won't coast. Trials will come that will turn into temptations to give up. As we coast. Blessings will come. That will turn in temptations. To lose our first love. Listen even if you're not coasting. What am I talking about? Those trials are going to come. With temptations to give up. When you're working and serving. And trying and seeking. You will find blessings. That will be wonderful. But they will also be poppies. If we're not careful. And trials that will just hit you and hit you. New trials you never saw before that God intends to thicken your heart, make it bigger. But those same trials Satan will use to whisper to you, give up. 
Give up. You can't do it. It's worthless. Stop calling out to him. And that brings me my, my last application point. Are you crying out to God for good soil? Now I'm going to read a little gospel grace into that last soil that's not explicit in the text. I hope to be used by the Holy Spirit this way in my feeble attempts to convict myself afresh, to convict you afresh of two things. You must endure. Don't, we, we cannot play games. We must bear fruit. God is not messing around with us. The second thing is that you cannot endure on your own. You cannot bear fruit on your own. That's the other thing I want to be used by the Lord, if he would, to convict myself afresh and you afresh of. On this side of heaven, I will never, you will never stop singing, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. What a gift to feel it. May we feel it. May it mean something to us that we are prone to wander. May it hurt us and bother us and scare us that we're prone to wander. That's a gift. Prone to leave the God I love. I will always have to sing that song on this side of heaven. The very gospel itself that I have to hold on to tells me that I will not, you will not ever be accepted by God by your own good soil. In yourself. Your soil only becomes good as we're changed by the Holy Spirit. As C.S. Lewis put it, Christians do not think God will love them because they are good. Christians think God will make them good because he loves them. Christians do not think God will love them because they are good. Christians think God will make them good because he loves them. Psalm 130 verse 4. With you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Another version says, with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. Because God doesn't stop holding us. We do not stop holding him. Because God repays our failures with mercy. Our hearts don't get hard against him. And I need that truth to open the doors in my heart to run to my father when I begin to feel that he's against me or I have no hope in this battle. I need the gospel because without it, if, if there is no forgiveness, he will not be feared. If there is no forgiveness, I will not serve him with reverence. I will serve him with pride and posturing and hypocrisy. I need the Holy Spirit because without him, I will make Roger Federer, my idol, invite him into my heart and ask him to be my Lord and Savior. I will make church and ministry success my central hope and hurt my wife and abandon my kids quietly and hypocritically in front of you. I will make compliant kids my goal instead of building them into the Lord because I want peace as opposed to having to do the hard work of parenting them into Jesus Christ. But God knows all of this. He knows that I can't call myself a Christian and stand before the day of judgment if I do not endure and bear fruit. He knows that. He knows I can't call myself a Christian and stand before him on the day of judgment if I do not endure and bear fruit. And so he gives me his Holy Spirit. And so he gives me a compassionate high priest I can run to. 
And so he warns me and he warns you. Church, there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. And the next breath, he encourages us. Therefore, because of this, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Let us endure our grip on our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But we have one who has been tempted in all things as we are. Yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace. So that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Who needs grace? Weak people need grace. Who needs mercy? Sinners need mercy. Who gives these things with delight and joy when we come believing in him for them? Our father does. So yes, brothers and sisters, we must endure. We must bear fruit. But his gospel is our hope. It is to be used. It is to be tried. It is to be rested on. It is rugged. It is thorough. It is able to save us to the uttermost. Let's pray.